0: In our studies, when I've been in the pulpit in the last few months, we've been working uh, through the book of Esther, and today, morning and evening, we plan, God willing, to complete our studies. So this morning, we're going to read chapter 8. Esther chapter 8, reading verses 1 to 17. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai Over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden sceptre to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing feels seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hammedatha." which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then king Ahasuerus said to queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman and they've hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time, in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the twenty-third day. And an edict was written, according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces, from India to Ethiopia, one hundred and twenty-seven provinces to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding out on swift horses that were used in the king's service. Bred from the royal stud. Saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city. To gather and defend their lives. To destroy. To kill. And to annihilate. 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 To destroy. To kill. And to annihilate any armed form of my people. Or province that might attack them children and women included, and to plunder their goods, on one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahazuerus, on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers, mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command. And the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honour. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews a feast and a holiday and many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them here is the word of god may god bless it in a moment as we look at it together once again we're looking at chapter 8 this morning not all of it, but the parts of it which seem to me the most significant. I think we see a picture here of holy war. Holy war. You remember that Haman had been intending to have the Jews all murdered. Here we see from Esther and Mordecai a new edict, and it's against what Haman was doing. And as they look at it, this plan which is given will result in killing over 75,000 of the worst of their enemy. We see that in chapter 9, verse 15. How is this different from what Haman proposed? Haman has been planning to kill people who aren't particularly his enemies, but he wants to destroy them. Mordecai is planning, through this, to kill the enemies of the Jews, over 75,000 people. How is it different? Why are the two things not the same? Verse 11, we're told that the king allowed the Jews... Note these verbs, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. He was was allowed to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate. Children and women. And if you go back to chapter 3, verse 13, you'll read what was given to Haman against the Jews. Letters were sent to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children. In both cases, to destroy, to kill, to annihilate women and children. These words are repeated here. Esther is quoting this if you like. She's giving a mirror image in it. She's not pleading her case on the grounds of morality or justice. look at verse four like verse 5 and as she comes to the king, What she's reminding him of are her physical attraction and her personal preference. If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and if I am pleasing in his eyes. That's her case. If I have favor, and if I am pleasing to you, It's not a solid basis for policy making, but this change is happening. Mordecai and Esther are able to move the Jewish people away from the threat of murder and give to them the right to have their enemies also killed. The fact is, Ahasuerus the king couldn't care less what happened To his subjects. Who they were. What they were saying. What they were believing. If some of his friends. Wanted them to be killed. He had them killed. This is the man. In charge of this. Verses 7 and 8. Behold. I have given Esther. The house of Haman. And they have hanged him on gallows. But you may write as you please. With regard to Jews. In the name of the king. You've beaten the enemy. And now you can do whatever you like. Anything else. Just don't bother me. He tells them to go and do whatever they want. And friends how can we defend this? How can we stand behind it and say well this is. This is what our people are saying. This is what they're doing. Is this not a classic example of God's people behaving almost as badly as the people of the world? They were going to kill Esther's people, now she's going to kill their people. What's the difference between them? If we want to turn this round, I think it's useful to look at three headings from the passage, which I hope will be for you informative. In the first place, extenuating circumstances. Extenuating circumstances. The parallels between the two edicts against the Jews and against their enemies. The parallels are more apparent than real. These aren't really similar things. Esther and her uncle are acting in self-defense. Verse 11. The king allowed the Jews who were in every city to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate, here we are, any armed force of any people or province that might attack them. That might attack them. This is defense. This is not blatant attack. They wouldn't raise their hand against anyone against unless they were those coming to massacre them. It comes out again in verse 11. "The king allowed the Jews to gather and defend their lives. That's what it is. Not to massacre their enemies but to defend their lives. That's one of the differences. Another point, verse 13. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province being publicly displayed to all peoples. And this happens in the third month Verses 8 and 9. No, chapter 8, verse 9. Chapter 8, verse 9. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Savan on the 23rd day. So the the, the bill, the statement, the legal thing is put out on that day, on the third month. The massacre is not to be until the twelfth month. Nine months. In other words, there's an extended public warning. The enemies of the Jews can pull back. The enemies of the Jews can change what they're saying. The enemies of the Jews, and it comes out at several places, they become, as it were, Jews themselves. They're not going to attack these people. That's the difference. In verse 16 of chapter 9, we're told that the Jews killed 75,000 people. Some of you children who are good at maths can probably find I'm making a mistake. There are 127 provinces in the empire, and that works out at less than 600 per province. In this vast, huge empire, this is not a large number. This is the hard core of violent anti-Semites. This is those who passionately hate these Jews and want to destroy them. Now, none of this is to defend what the Jews are going to do. I'm simply saying that there's no way in which this is comparable to the genocide which was coming from the other people. The defense comes from looking at the circumstances and their different self-defense given only to protect themselves against those who want to kill them. Very different from what their enemies had planned. Secondly, I'd like us to look for a few moments at underlying reality. Underlying reality. It's a phenomenon here Of what we find often in the Old Testament of holy war. Of holy war. At the end of the world, God will finally judge all who are opposed to Him. Revelation 19, verse 11, following Then I saw the heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. And the armies of heaven, arranged in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will tread, Wine press of fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. A very, very solemn, solemn here at the end. God the Almighty will, in his holy anger, kill and punish those who have done wrong. That will happen, and they're punished, and they're in hell forever. And these, these events that we're reading about are a sort of a phenomenon of that foreshadowing. We see many foreshadowings in the Old Testament. The flood God comes and most of the people of God, uh, most of the people are destroyed, they die. Sodom and Gomorrah, the wicked are destroyed. Disasters, accidents, Ever since right throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament. You remember perhaps Jesus' comment on two contemporary tragedies in Galilee and Siloam unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Luke thirteen five. God is going to judge the wicked. God is going to destroy the wicked. And again and again, in history, he shows his people that that is what will happen. Sometimes he uses Israelites as agents of his judgment. You see, for example, Canaan, Jericho, they devoted all the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. Joshua 6.21 That's an occasion where there is fierce, cruel it seems, destruction of the wicked and the evil. And it happens. And in that, God is warning us of hell. He's warning us of being lost and damned. And what it means like to fall into his hands and to be punished forever. Here in Esther, you have a similar example of his people engaging in holy war. Holy war. Haman, in this book, in this chapter, is twice described as the a- Agagite. A- Agagite. A- Does that sound right? Agagite a- or A-G-A-G-I-T-E. Uh, and that com- that links us immediately with the next chapter, chapter nine, verse twenty-four. Haman, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews. Why does he Why does he call him that? Why is that his ancestry that he wants to underline? Agag was the king of the Amalekites, the ancient enemy of Israel, about whom God said that they were to be wiped out. Because of their hostility to Israel. After the exodus. You remember that Saul. An ancestor of Mordecai. Failed to carry out God's judgment. For which Saul was punished. Now Saul's descendant. Is completing this process. Against the descendant of Agag. And his supporters. In other words. This is a God-ordained war against those who are seeking to destroy the people from whom the Messiah will come. It's confirmed by an emphatic statement in chapter 9. By, by terms of the edict, the Jews were allowed to Not only to kill those who attacked them, but to take their property. And yet after killing the ten sons of Haman, we're told in verses 9 and 10, they laid no hand on the plunder. Similarly, verses 15 and 16, they laid no hands on the plunder. They laid no hands on the plunder that's, if you like, the rule of holy war. Achan was like that at Ai. Those who are involved in the war are not to profit from the victory. Are not to profit from the victory. For the battle is God's. And the spoils of the battle is not theirs to take and to have. And so the writer of the book is telling us here, clearly, that the Jews see themselves not as acting simply for themselves, but as agents of God's judgment. They see themselves here as agents of God's judgment. Here, you see, is the reflection of the reality of what it is. the actions of the Jews in killing their enemies, this is the reality of the enmity between the descendants of of the woman and the descendants of the serpent. It's also the curse of the covenant with Abraham. Genesis 12.3 I will bless those who bless you. And he who dishonours you, I will curse. Friends, over and beyond all these details, here simply is a hard, strong warning to those who have not yet trusted in Christ. That reality still continues. Everyone is on one side or another. Everyone is of God or of the devil. And what the call, the call of the word is, to repent and believe in Christ, or you will suffer a fate infinitely worse than what's to befell, befell the enemies of the Jews in Persia. You remember the solemn warning from the Lord Jesus in Luke 13. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And that brings us thirdly and finally to what I've called the transforming development. The transforming development. What is this to say to us? What is this passage talking to us about? We've seen it in the past. What is God's word saying here? In the past, there have been eras of God's working. The era of Moses, when the law was sufficient when the judgment was predominant. We, however, are now in the age of grace. You remember when James and John wanted to declare a holy war on the hostile Samaritan village? Luke 9, 54-55. Lord, do you want us to tell the fire to come down from heaven and consume them. But he turned and rebuked them. Our calling is still to a holy war. But the change now is for us to fight with spiritual weapons, to conquer the enemies by seeing them changed into disciples. The sword of the Spirit which is the word of God, as Paul puts it. And the emphasis here, I think, in this chapter is on the speed with which this is to be proclaimed throughout the whole empire. Verse 10. He, Mordecai, sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service. Bread from royal stud. And these people are to cover. Up to 2000 miles. There's no time for delay. And it's saying to us. How much urgency is needed. To take the gospel. To all nations. For the era of judgment. Still stands. But thank God. There's a way of escape which is open to all. Verse 17. Many people of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. They didn't pursue the Jews. They didn't hate the Jews. They didn't want to kill them. They declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen upon them. It appears that in the case of some, this identification with the people of God is sincere and it's lasting and it's real. We could look at chapter 9, verses 26 and 27. Let me just mention it. Therefore they called these days Purim. The Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring to And all who joined them. And all who joined them. It speaks here of many people joining the Jews. And so we are to invite those who are outside us to become part of God's people. We are to point out to them the disaster of their destiny. We are to explain to them the grace of the Savior. And the fact that the door is still open. And urge them by his grace to come. And more than that. We have a savior. Much greater than Mordecai. In verses 15 and 16. We read of Mordecai. He went out from the presence of the king. In royal robes. With a great golden crown. And the city shouted and rejoiced. The king, the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. He went out from the presence of the king in royal robes with a great golden crown. And the city shouted and rejoiced. And the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor their leader, their master, the one who led them and was in charge of them, the one who has obtained life for them. He is riding in glory and they're honoring him. And our deliverer is even now at the right hand of God. He is ruling over all. He's bringing all his people to salvation. And our privilege is to take that great good news with urgency into all the world. To whom might you or I convey that message this coming week? Amen. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Lord, you're able to come and to take your word, and to put it into our hearts. No matter how inadequate we may feel the presentation of the word may be, yet your spirit is gracious, and you love your people. We pray that you will speak to your people here, and bless them from word heard or sung here today, and strengthen them to live for your glory. Father, we thank you for this picture of the Jews struggling against their enemies, obtaining victory, and being joined by so many others. And we thank you, O God, that the one at our head is far, far greater than Mordecai, but in every way extends him. And so, Father, be with us now. Help us to lay it up in our hearts and bless this day to us, we pray.